I love what that dad said. He said, I stepped forward and became a Christian. And then he talks about his son stepping forward and becoming Christians. And I was really praying as we were worshiping for any man in this room, not sure what what age, but any man in this room that's never stepped forward and become a Christian. I mean, this this is a decision to follow Christ. Believing that at the cross he took all of your sin and he canceled it. And he paid the debt. And um, I mean, there's just really no such thing as an undercover Christian. Like, I, I'm just going to be a Christian, but I'm not going to step forward. No, if you're a Christian, you're following Jesus. That's, that's what you, you, you committed, that Jesus is now the master. He's the Lord, and you're going to learn. You're going to follow. That's what it means to be a disciple, is to be a follower, a learner. And so I'm praying for a man in here that maybe you've never been born again, and today the Holy Spirit of God has revealed that to you, and he's calling you. Come to the altar. Come to Christ. Let's look at Joshua 4. Uh, Joshua chapter 4 really just tried to kind of stay with the life of Joshua this weekend. Um, We opened last night with uh, Moses handing the mantle of leadership to Joshua. And we we talked about how Moses laid his hands on him. Moses invested his life in the young man. Trying to help him understand the right view, the right vision of man. That we need need God. We need to get under the banner of God. and, And the victory belongs to the Lord. And then Moses tried to help Joshua get a, the right vision of God. That when you get the right vision of God, you realize God is worthy of all the glory. And then this morning we just we talked about this, this uh, natural bent in our human hearts toward idolatry. And that really the antidote for idolatry is just seeing the gospel. Seeing the work of of Christ. And you know, I just my prayer is that we will be men, we'll be husbands and fathers and grandfathers that we talk about the gospel. That our homes are uh, cultures of grace that that is talked about. And I know Todd and Brett taught on, you know, fathers and sons and as they were teaching, I thought about this question that just kind of continued to loom out there like how does a young man get to the point where he could go to his dad and say, Dad, I'm hooked on pornography. Dad, I'm, I'm stuck and I need help. I'm addicted. And I, and I, I don't have the answer either, but I, just, I really believe it, it, that happens in a home where there's a culture of grace. I think that happens in a home where dad and mom are daily talking about how... Yet again, they've fallen down and they've blown it and they got up looking at the cross. And so I think, I think that just sets an atmosphere where sons and daughters can realize the power of the gospel that motivates him or her to live in, in victory. None of that's even on my notes, but anyway, I got off there, but... Um, so here we are in Joshua 4. Um, we're kind of picking up in between last night's sermon and this morning's sermon. And uh, so now in Joshua 4, Moses, has, Pat, Moses is dead. Joshua has the reins. They're on the east side of the Jordan. The promised land's on the west side of the Jordan. And uh, Joshua's in charge, and he's... He's got this task of, of leading the people of God to take possession of what God gave them. So um, look at verse 19 of Joshua 4. Joshua four nineteen, It says, Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern shore of Jericho. Verse 20. Those twelve stones which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. He said to the sons of Israel, 
When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So I want to talk this afternoon about stones of remembrance. Stones of remembrance. And we need to set some context here. If you'll flip back to chapter 3, and let me just kind of help you totally understand where we're at here. Joshua 3, 1, it says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan. And they lodged there before they crossed. So here's Joshua and all Israel, two, probably two million plus, uh, camped on the east side of the Jordan. And they're literally, guys, yards from the promised land. I mean, they're, it's right there. The only problem is there's a swollen river that's overflowed its banks at this time of the year between them and the promised land. And so, in verse number 9 of chapter 3, if you'll just kind of look at that, let me read a few verses. It says, Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then, take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. And then it's kind of like, remember that, because that's going to come up again in verse... In chapter 4, verse 13, It shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan will be cut off. And the waters which are flowing down from above will stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water. For the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest. And in verse 17 it says, And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan. While all Israel crossed on dry ground until, watch this, all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. And so, you got the picture. Everybody standing on the east side of this swollen river. Overflowed its banks. 600,000 men plus women and children. And... They've, they've, they're moving. Has anybody ever moved? Chris McRae's moving. He's not here. That's why he's not here. He's moving. That's a major deal, isn't it? And so I wonder, is there, a, is there a guy in here that would volunteer to help me just a minute? I'm trying to just paint this picture, and I just need a volunteer. Matt, thank you. Thank you so much. Did you guys see his hand? Thanks, Matt. And so Matt is uh, one of those 600,000 men, and here's your stuff. Um, See here, I'll just start handing you this stuff because moving is a lot. Let's see here. Okay. Okay. And then your wife, she, these pillows were her grandmother's. These are, don't let those get wet. And then there's one more. 
And then, um, oh, my word, don't forget the Bible. And then, of course, I mean, we got to have, we got to worship. So don't forget the guitar. All right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I can take this one, too. All right. You got everything? Okay. And so here's what we're going to do. We're gonna, just going to let Matt cross the river. Why don't you just circle the tables here. Meet me back over here. So there he goes, and, and so you can, uh, you can just kind of picture 600,000 men, and they're all packed, and they're loaded down, and they're crossing the river, and uh, you see the priest, right? They're out in the middle of the river, and we'll just say he's at the middle now. They're out there in the middle, and, and uh, they're, they're standing with the ark, and the, the river's dried up like 15 miles up, upstream, and the Bible says in chapter 4, verse 10, that the people hurried across. Now, I don't know about you, but, it, but if that's me, man, I, I'm going to be like, I'm going to be looking upstream, aren't you? Like, where, where'd the water go and is it coming, right? Okay, so Matt, just stand right there and let me just kind of paint the picture a little further here. <laughs> so I, I'm just picturing as they step up out of the riverbed, there's just these sighs of relief. You know, like, hallelujah, you know, the water didn't come down and get me. Okay, now in chapter 4, verse number 1, let me just read a couple of verses here. It says, Now when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men. Now remember the twelve men from chapter 3. Twelve men from the people, one man from each tribe, and command them, saying, Take up for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet are standing firm and carry them over with you and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe, and Joshua said to them, cross again to the ark of the Lord your God in the middle of the Jordan and each of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribe's of the sons of Israel. And so, you know, if, if I'm one of those 12 guys, and Matt, you, you, you've been selected. Matt's one of those 12 guys. And, and, and Joshua says, okay, Matt, here's what I need you to do. Before you head on over, uh, you know, toward the promised land, I need you to go back out in the river. Okay? And there's, there's, gonna be, there's some big stones out there where the priests are standing with the ark. And I want you to get one of those stones. Now, I don't know about you, but if I've got something really heavy, like over 50 pounds, that's what I put on my shoulder. Like, you know, if I've got like a 14-ounce rock, I don't put that on my shoulder. But if I'm dealing with a really large stone, that's what I... So we're talking about some pretty big stones here. Haul it up on your shoulder. So, Matt, if you would, take that stuff and go back to the middle and grab that stone over there behind the couch and, and bring it back around here for you, if you would. He's doing good, isn't he? We're cheering you on, man. So, you, do you see it? It's a stone right there behind the couch. Uh, don't you get your wife's pillows wet? That's all I'm saying. I mean, I know it's dry ground, but there could be some mud or something. Just do, you know, just do what you got to do, brother. Okay, if you need to, bring the stone around and then go back and get the stuff. Okay, do that. That'll work. Okay. Dude, if you drop that and crack this, this floor and then the whole building falls, they're never going to invite me back. All right. I see you left your wife's pillows out there. Those were her grandmother's pillows, Matt. Okay. All right. And actually, um, here's the thing. We're actually not going to put the stone here. We're going to put the stone where we're camping. Let me show you. Can you show that map? Okay. So, 
So we're right there. We just, we're just crossing the Jordan. But, the, but Joshua actually, the Lord said, we want to take the stone and all the, all the luggage, and we want to take it to where we're going to lodge tonight, where we're going to rest. And so that's at Gilgal. So you still, it'd be like kind of maybe toting all this over to, to Todd and Julie's house. Okay. Okay. So I'll tell you what, if you need to just put it down for a minute and go get the rest of the stuff and then come back and then you can start hauling all this over to Todd and Julie's house. Okay, Okay, now we're going to give Matt a hand. We're going to let him off the hook. Nice job. Hey, but I do need my Bible back there. Okay, so Matt's going to go get all the stuff, bring it back. And you say, "Um, Pastor Paul, what are we doing? Hey, listen to me, guys. Leaving stones of remembrance is going to take time and effort. This, this, was no, this was no easy thing to go back out there into the river that we just got out of. Hallelujah, praise God, the waters didn't come. And we all breathe a sigh of relief. And, and, and then Joshua sends these 12 men back out into the to the middle of the riverbed to get these massive stones. And not just bring them to the edge of the river, but to haul them with all the luggage to the, to the campsite. Matt, really, I appreciate you, brother. Thank you so much. Here's a picture of my dad. He's holding probably, probably the most beautiful baby that's ever been born. That picture was taken in September of 1971. That's me. And uh, my dad was, was in sales. He sold um, commercial heating and HVAC equipment like roof curb, like big roof curbs and kitchen hoods and uh, fire dampers and all the kind of things that you'd put for heating and air in a, in a commercial building. And, um, and see... It's kind of hard for me to relate to my dad's career because I was in the pulp and paper industry when I got out of Georgia Tech. And I had a, I mean, I had a, I wasn't making millions by any means, but I had a very secure job in the sense that I knew I was going to get a paycheck. Like whether we had a good month or a bad month, I knew I was going to get a paycheck. So my wife, she pretty much never worried about us eating. But see, dad was a salesman. And I don't know if any of you guys are in sales or not. But dad was a commissioned salesman. So basically that meant if he had a good month, we ate. And if he had a bad month, we didn't eat. And so maybe there's a couple of salesmen in here. You can relate to that. It's a high-pressure job. And uh, here's the thing I remember about my dad. It didn't matter if my dad landed the $200,000 order or he lost the $200,000 order. When he got home, he had a routine. He would kiss my mama, and then he would go in his bedroom, and he would take off his salesman clothes, and he would put on his play clothes, and he would say, where's my boys? And my dad would play with his sons. Here's a a picture. Um, The good-looking, muscular kid sitting in the back, that's me. The kid that actually catches fish is my brother. And there's my dad. That's uh, probably about 19, I'm guessing, 78 or 9. And that was our 20-foot sea ray that we would go. That's Lake Lanier. I don't know if you know, if you know anything about Georgia, but it's Lake Lanier probably. It's where we always went. Here's another picture. Uh, this was probably about 1984. And there's me and Clint. I'm the um, really good-looking kid in the middle there in the... In the, in, the, in the red vest. And um, my dad there. This is the days of three-wheelers. Anybody remember those days? And uh, we were riding up off of Thornton Road probably when that picture was taken. And uh, that's before it all grew up. And I, this is no lie. I buried that, that Honda XR80 in the mud off of Thornton Road just west of Atlanta one day. And I, I promise you, Eagle Scout honor, I buried that thing in the mud so deep. All you could see was the grip on one handlebar. And it was a cold day, and we were out riding, and it started raining. And my dad, he waded out into the mud, and he's trying to help me get my... It was like quick mud or something. My, my bike just kept sinking, sinking, sinking. 
And so my dad got out there, and he's trying to help me dig my bike out, and he just slowly going down in the mud, and uh, it started raining, it was cold, and my dad started kind of panicking. And his chest started hurting, and all of a sudden I began to realize, my dad, my, I'm about to, he's about to die out here in this mud hole. What a terrible place to die, stuck in a mud hole. We, I was so dumb. We took a rope. And we tied it around my dad, and he's a thick man. We tied it around him, and we hooked it to the three-wheeler, and we tried to pull my dad out of the mud. We should forget the motorcycle. So we finally were able to dig my dad out. We left my bike, came back the next day, and got it out. And here's a little plug for Hondas. That thing fired right up. <laughs> it really did. But um, my dad, he left me and my brother Clint a legacy. He invested... In our lives, He's, he invested his time and his effort in leaving stones of remembrance and time and effort in, in molding men of God. Um, I'll never forget the summer of 1999. I lived in Macon, Georgia at this point, Brandy and I. Uh, when I got out of Georgia Tech, we had moved to South Mississippi, and we lived on the Gulf Coast, and I worked for an international paper. And then in 98, we moved to Macon, Georgia, and I worked for an old Georgia craft mill, but it was, it was Riverwood International, now it's graphic packaging. But anyway, my brother was pastoring by this point, and he was in Pascagoula, Mississippi. And so our family, me and my wife, and uh, our, our baby girl, Laura, had met Clint and Tammy, from Mississippi, and my parents from the Atlanta area, and we had all met in Pensacola, Florida. And I never will forget, uh, out on the beach of Pensacola, throwing the softball with my dad. And me and Clint, we grew up playing softball, actually with Todd. And uh, Todd played second base, and I played some second base sometimes. And, and, uh, but anyway, we were out there playing ball, and we got finished playing ball. My dad said, Bubba, give me that softball. And so I, I handed him the softball, and he took out, he, he always had a pen right here. He took his pen, and he wrote 8199 Pensacola softball. And he gave it to me. And I thought, that's weird. That's <laughs> okay, thanks. What I didn't know, and, it, and I mean, it's almost like he knew, but I know he didn't, is that about. A little over two years later, he was going to be killed in a car wreck. And I don't remember, maybe there was, but I don't really remember another time where we just got out like that for an hour or two and just threw the ball. Because we had families, you know how it goes. So I took some clear fingernail polish, and every couple of years I paint over it. And you can still read it, but I'm trying to preserve it because I'm going to tell you what this is. This is a stone of remembrance for me. That while my dad didn't leave me millions of dollars or tons of worldly material type possessions. I mean, he left a legacy of investing time with his children. And so that, this, this softball is, is, a, is a stone of remembrance for me. I want you to look at chapter 4 verse 21. He said to the sons of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which He dried up before us until we crossed. When I read that, I thought, you know, there's no mention of Joshua right there. Like, hey, when they ask about these stones, well, tell them about Joshua. When they ask about these stones, tell them about Moses. But no, actually, when they ask about these stones, tell them about the Lord. And I wrote this down. Stones of remembrance point to the glory of God. Stones of remembrance point to the glory of God. And
and I don't know, I'm kind of foggy now on how many, what, what pictures I had on the slideshow. And, 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 uh, but is there a picture of our family below a sign, an Iowa sign? Maybe if there is, you can show that. Maybe there's not. Is there a picture of my family with... Uh... So, um, I, think, I think one of the stones of remembrance that God's allowed me and Brandy to leave is just... Like living in Iowa. We, uh, we came up here and did a youth event for Youth Leader Connection, which was a ministry that, that um, Todd led for quite a few years. And it was an all-guys retreat, guys with guts. I told you about it. And I remember one, we were, we were down at, uh, in Promise City, Iowa, and it was, the wind was blowing like it always does in Iowa. And it was cold. It was about 13 degrees in November. And... And we had this old boy named Wesley Whitlock with us. And Wesley was helping us with the retreat. And we're all trying to get set up. And Wesley stands up. And I never will forget his words. He said, why am I in Iowa? <laughs> it's just out of the blue. And that became the catchphrase all weekend. We was about to freeze to death. And we'd just look at each other and we'd say, why are we in Iowa? You know. But um, here's basically the deal with that. I was a youth pastor in Georgia um, for 11 and a half years. And in, uh, in December of 2012, God began to really stir in my heart that he was going to move me. And I had been, I had had what I've heard people describe as like a holy discontent or just like this real sense that God was finished with me at Shiloh where I was serving and that but I, he had not given me any understanding of where or even when to leave. And I was, honestly, I was approaching the state of miserable. And um, in, in December of 2012, God just said, all right, I'm going to move you. But I still didn't know when or where. And so after Christmas, um, right before the new year, my family was going to go up to Athens, Georgia, to a music store, my older two play piano and my son's a composer my oldest son and loves piano music so we're just a whole family is going to go up to to Athens to this one huge music store and uh, I told Brandy when we got in the car I said Brandy I uh I don't know where we're going but I really believe God's about to move us I just wish he'd tell us where so we got about 30 miles up the road my phone rang and it was a guy named Ryan Bennett from Cornerstone Community Church in Sheraton, Iowa. And we got to talking, and he's like, hey, I don't know if you remember us or not. I said, sure, I remember you guys, because that, you know, I had been up here and done a couple of youth, youth things. And the church had actually called me in 07, asking if I would consider coming to be their pastor and, and being a candidate. And we prayed, and we didn't feel the Lord giving us that, that liberty. But this time, when Ryan called, I mean, it was just immediate. I just knew. I sensed it. And um, I looked at my wife, and I'm like, that was a guy from Iowa. <laughs> and uh, I never will forget my mom, grandmommy, she's sitting in the back seat, and I remember she said real quiet under her breath, oh, my word, we're going to Iowa. <laughs> so you know how it takes forever, and they began to call me, and, and we began to talk, and, and it became clear to me that, that the church over the last 10 years had become very, what you might say, non-denominational in a bad way. That various doctrines had come in about salvation and about what happened at Calvary. And, um, and so I just began to lay out very clearly to the elders what I believed about the cross and about what happened at Calvary. And, and how I understood the gospel and... Um, and, I, and every time I would hang up, I told Brandy, I'm like, they're never calling me back, I guarantee it. And they, would, they just kept calling back. They kept calling back. And so, um, finally, they invited me to come, back, come up. It was May of 2013. And I never will forget, I left Georgia, it was about 65 degrees. And I remember flying into to Des Moines, and I remember looking down, and I'm like thinking, why is everything white? And there was... Some of y'all remember this. There was 10 inches of snow on the ground first weekend of May. And I remember thinking, Lord Jesus, no, I don't want to come to Iowa. And uh, so we, things kept moving. They, they flew us back up in June. And, and Brandy told me that last week, she said, honey, when we, and, and in our church is in the Iowa Baptist Convention, but you wouldn't probably know that from the road. 
Cornerstone Community Church, probably kind of like First Family. You know, you might not necessarily know from the road that First Family's in the Iowa Baptist Convention. But anyway, Brandy told me, she said, Honey, when we left Shiloh Baptist Church, I was terrified to, quote, unquote, leave the Baptist Church. And I wasn't necessarily terrified about that. I, I, my fear was just the fact, I, I just had, I told the elders, I said, if you call me to this church, this church will split in the first six months. Because literally half the church had come from Wesleyan background. That basically, the, their, their, their mentality was, I'm holding on to God. And that was their mentality. And so basically it comes out of an understanding that at the cross, Jesus made everybody savable, and now we're just going to wait and see who wakes up one day and decides to follow him. Friends, that's not what happened at the cross. Jesus saved me at the cross. He's holding on to me. And, and, and so I told the elders, I said, guys, you've you got to understand, I'm going to preach the perseverance of the saints, and I'm going to preach that at the, at the cross, Jesus canceled my debt. And Paul said in Colossians that at the cross, he forgave me of all my sins. And so I just can't, you know, I, I, I had this mindset that, that kind of we're going we're to go into a terrible, terrible church split. That's what's coming. And I, God, that's what you call me to. I'll do it. And so I never will forget, June, we were there kind of on a house hunting trip. And we, this was the second sermon I was going to preach. And the worship team, the worship team was singing a song. I can't even remember for sure what song it was. And, and, and this was like the, before the message, before I preached. Guys, the glory of God fell on that place. And that's just all I know to say. And Brandy and I went to the altar and I've never experienced it. It was just like I was, in, I was up on the mountain. And, and, and the glory of God fell, and I was weeping uncontrollably. And in that moment, God just basically said, you need to stop worrying about church splits and all that, and you need to trust that I am the God that Moses met with on the mountain. And that my power and my glory is all you need. And so the church called us. We had a few, you know, we had a few folks that... Voted no, it wasn't 100%. It was like 97% yes. And so we, we came. And guys, I give God all the glory because he showed me he did this. There was no church split. There's a few families that just said doctrinally, we got to leave. We don't line up, this and that. But there was no church split. In other words, actually what happened was our church began to grow. And, and to God be the glory, instead of a church split, we doubled in the first two years. And I've already shared my testimony this morning of how that actually became an idol for me. And God's just even recently been dealing with me about that. But I just want you to see that stones of remembrance, when they say, Dad, why are we in Iowa? We're in Iowa because of the glory of God. We're in Iowa because of the power of God that came down and did exceedingly abundantly beyond what we ever thought to even pray for or imagine. Look at verse 20, 420. Those 12 stones which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. So you saw Matt up here, and he's got all the luggage, and he's got this massive stone. And, and he can't just lay it down at the river. He's got to take it to the campsite, Gilgal. And so I began to think about that. What's up with that? Why not build, why not build this stone monument by the river? And I really believe the Lord showed me this. Joshua had those 12 men take those stones to the place they rested that night. Now, in Joshua 5, 8, if you want to look at that, it says, Now when they had finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And then the Lord said to Joshua, Today, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Guys, you know what Gilgal means? It means the place of rolling. The rolling. In other words, for 40 years, Israel's been the laughing stock of Egypt. 
Because they left Egypt, but they have failed to gain what they left for. And so all the shame and the reproach of their failure now has been rolled away. Because they've crossed the Jordan. And they're in the promised land. And it says in 510, while the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, on the desert plains of Jericho. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes, and bacon, egg, and cheese biscuits. And so they're... They're celebrating the Passover. Now listen guys, put all this together in your mind. The Passover is this celebration where they slay the Passover lamb to remember that exodus, right? That first night where the death angel passed over the homes covered by the blood. And so the point is this, sir, if you are covered by the blood of Jesus... All the shame and the guilt and the penalty for your sin has been rolled away at Calvary. And that is where God gave you rest. And so I I, I think this is important. Stones of remembrance point to the grace of God. They point to the grace of God. I got a couple more stones of remembrance. This sweatshirt has a little logo on it. And it says Moss Point Mill. International paper, one of their oldest mills was in Moss Point, Mississippi on the Gulf Coast. And you know how it goes when you have, you know, a half a million... Uh, man hours without a lost time incident, everybody gets a shirt. Or Some of you guys in, in manufacturing, you understand that recordables and incidents and all that, lost time. And here, This one says, International Paper Corporate Education. And so I was in what you might call middle management at the paper mill there. And I've got another duffel bag over there. I've got tons of stuff. And, and so I, I think... Another question my kids might ask, certainly, Dad, why are we in Iowa? But another question would be, Dad, why did you leave the paper mill? And basically, in uh, 2001, God began to call me into ministry, like vocational. Like, God began to call me to, to pastor, to shepherd the flock. And, man, I ran from that as hard and as fast as I could. I was, I was a Jonah for sure. And um, I was reading uh, chapter 2 of Lectures to My Students, a book by Charles, a collection of Charles Spurgeon's works. And, and uh, chapter 2 is all about the call of ministry. I was reading it the second time through. I read, it, I read it through once, and it was clearly me. And I'm like, I put it down. A few months later, I picked it up. I read it again. I'm halfway through it. I'm clearly being called by God to ministry. And I'm saying, no, no, no. February 5th, 2002, I'm on number two Kimmy washer inspecting the fabric uh, after the morning meeting, which is where we would wash about a thousand tons of pulp a day. And my pager, this is the days of pagers, my pager went off. I ran to the control room. It, it said 911. I ran to the control room. I called home. Brandy said, Don't ask me any questions, come home. And so I ran to the parking lot. First, I had to go take my lock off. Some of y'all know about locking out. I had to take my lock off. And then I, I, uh, I ran to the parking lot. When I got to the parking lot, my pastor and worship pastor were standing at my car. None of this is good, you know. And um, the pastor says, Paul, I need to share with you that your dad's just been killed in a car wreck on I-20. And uh, so they drove me home, got home. You know, embrace my wife, call my mom. She's calmed down some. I told my, this is what I told my mom. I said, Mom, this did not surprise God. And I was able to encourage her, but guys, deep in my heart, I began to get very mad with God because I felt like He was bullying me. And I felt like He was strong arming me. And about a week or two later, and, and, and I'm ashamed of this, 
But I was standing in my bedroom, and I never will forget where I was standing and what I said. I took my fist, and I shook it at God, and I said, I hate you. And I told God that I hated him for calling me in the ministry and then taking my dad just to bully me to say, okay, I'll surrender. Now, that's just, that was what was going on in my fleshly, you know, severely misled mind. And so, a few weeks later, at Tattnall Square Baptist Church in Macon, Georgia, Eddie Christenberry, one Sunday night, was preaching out of Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones. And he said, are you so dry tonight? And I was so dry from running. And I went forward that night and I surrendered to ministry. And I went on bivocational for 16 months just trying to hold on to the career that I'd been working on for 10 years. And uh, God continued to show me that he wanted me to be full-time pastor of the flock. And I was going down Highway 83 from Monticello to Macon, Georgia one morning. And I said, Lord, if you want me to resign from the paper mill and you really want me to to walk away from this career that you've been blessing. I mean, they had told me kind of under the radar that I was going to be the next meal manager, which is still not millions, but it's, I mean, it's three or 400,000 a year. God, if you really want me to do that, then you got to give me a sign. I, I need a sign, Lord. Amen. As soon as I said amen, I look and I'm passing Enon Baptist Church and the marquee read... Ministry that costs you nothing accomplishes nothing. I said, Lord, I didn't need the sign today. <laughs> so I went in that day and I began to work an exit plan with my boss for me to, for me to leave the paper mill industry altogether. And uh, I never will forget the day that we were going to make that public. And I was going to, I mean, for six months we kept it under the radar and just kind of got some people in place to be, I was the superintendent of the pulp mill, kind of three main areas. And so I had about, I mean, it was a big operation with 2,000 tons of paper a day and we had to produce all the pulp for that. And so two weeks before I, I was gone, I went to the morning meeting and this was the day I was going to share. And uh, actually my boss, um, at the mill, he was the mill manager. He, uh, he was born again at my dad's funeral. And he looked at me and he said, Paul's got an announcement. And I inhaled to share with them that God had called me into ministry and that I was going to be resigning to go full time. And, and uh, I inhaled to speak. And guys, the cloud came on me again. And I was speechless. I could not Speak. And I'll tell you what I remember being so overwhelmed with. I, began, I was so overwhelmed with the grace of God that God would save me and then call me to shepherd the flock. And just the grace that he had every right to snuff me out while I'm standing there shaking my fist at him, telling him I hate him. But instead, in his grace, he just continued to just draw me and show me his plan for my life. I want to show you something in four nine. Joshua four nine. It says, Then Joshua set up twelve stones in the middle of the Jordan, at the place where the feet of the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant, were standing. And they are there to this day. Man, I studied that and I'm like, what's going on? Because we know about these 12 stones that these 12 guys toted from the middle of the Jordan and they put them there at Gilgal. But Joshua himself goes out there and sets up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan. And you know when the water came back down, it covered them up. But guys, I want you to think with me. Don't you think over time, those 12 stones at Gilgal kind of just became common? 
Don't you think over time it just kind of became routine? Oh yeah, that's the stones that they set up when they crossed. But there was a season that would come when the water would start to drop. And we're talking about an agrarian society. We're talking about a society that when the drought hits, people die. And don't you know that there was times periodically throughout the years when the Jordan would begin to dry up. And in those valleys and in those times of drought, guess what would become visible out there in the middle? Those stones. Those stones. Oh yeah. I remember now there was 12 stones out there in the middle. What is this a reminder of? This is a reminder of God Almighty in the middle of your drought, in the middle of your storm, in the middle of your valley. He's faithful. And I, and I wrote this down. I think stones of remembrance point to the faithfulness of God. Laura Leanne Miller was our firstborn. She was born November 20th, 1998. This picture here is a picture of her being dedicated to the Lord. That's Andy Oxford. He was the pastor at Tattnall Square Baptist Church in Macon. That good-looking guy on the right, that's me. And that pretty girl there, that's Miss Brandy. I know I way out punted my coverage when I married her. And we dedicated Laura to the Lord that morning. When she was four, she made a profession of faith. And I baptized her at Shiloh Baptist Church early in my ministry. When she was eight, she said that God was calling her to be a missionary. When she was ten, she came to me one night. And she said, Dad, I don't even remember getting saved. I'm scared to death I'm going to hell. So we went through the gospel and she prayed a sinner's prayer and I baptized her again. When she was 11 years old, she was going into the sixth grade and she was coming into my youth group. And I'd been a youth pastor long enough to know she was walking into the very most difficult years of her life. And I... uh, Me and Brandy, we kind of crafted a plan that I was going to do father-daughter retreats with her every year through her teenage years. And so, I took her down to the creek behind our house, which is a creek, right? But it was was a creek in Georgia. We went down to the creek and we, uh, I had bought her a little ring. And I got down on one knee, she was sitting on a little bench, and I said, Laura, I said, I want to propose something to you today I want to propose that me and you make a covenant with each other and I want to propose that you'll let me and allow me the privilege of guarding your heart until another man comes along one day and takes this ring off and puts another ring on your finger and that day we slipped this ring right here on her finger down by the creek behind our house in newborn Georgia And the next weekend, I took her on the first of very many father-daughter retreats. Here's a picture of us on that first father-daughter retreat. Callaway Gardens. I don't know if anybody's heard of that down in middle Georgia. Outside of Columbus. There's one more picture here. Part of our uh, tradition is, it was usually a two-night retreat. And the second night, um, we would go out to eat fancy. You know, we'd all get all dressed up. We'd go out to eat fancy. And so we did that over and over and over every year. We'd do a father-daughter retreat and we'd talk about things like guarding her heart and biblical womanhood and, and, and purity and um, look, you know, what she should look for in a husband and all these things. Well, it was the summer after her eighth grade year that God called us to Iowa. And even though she was in my youth group... And she was our daughter, and we were doing all these things. Looking back on it, 
she was she was getting it she was she was not on she was not on the right road even when we left George but when we got to Iowa um it became apparent the first couple of years, ninth and tenth grade, that we did not have her heart. And that she was not totally, really on board with the covenant that I thought we had made at the creek. And I told her that day in the sixth grade, going into sixth grade, I said, Honey, you're going to be all for this right now, but you're going to turn about 15, and this is going to be hard. She said, Oh, Daddy, that's okay. I'm, 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 I'll do it. I'm ready. Well, she turned about 15, and it got really hard for her. And just it was just kind of a slow fade, and we began, over time, we began to see that she was not honest with us, and she was lying all the time. And, uh, but all the while, she's leading worship with our adult band, with our student band. She's got a ton of talent. She taught herself to play the guitar. She starts writing amazing songs. She was selected. She won a, an opportunity to go to a songwriting conference out in Aspen, Colorado with Matthew West and spent some time with Matthew West and he was very encouraging to her. And um, So there's kind of this double life going on. And Brandy and I, we just kept saying, well, you know, it's just teenage years. She's just battling with her flesh. And Two summers ago, we went, on, we went on a family vacation. God kind of worked it out and gave us, basically gave us a trip to Branson and we were down there and we got home and things were really blowing up. Um, because she continued to kind of have these under-the-table under relationships with these guys, and guys at church. But they were out of the boundaries that we, that we felt like was healthy for her. And I remember one night, we just had got back from Branson. The very next night, there was this horrible scene where I'd caught her in another lie, and I took her phone. It was always involving her phone. I took her phone... And, I, and I, I was out of control. I was in a fit of rage. And I threw her phone as hard as I could and bounced it off the barn about 70, 80 yards behind the house. And then I grabbed her wallet with her driver's license and I threw her wallet. And I was so out of control that I just destroyed my shoulder throwing that stuff. Because you know how it is when you throw something light. And... Um, this whole thing just rocked on, just, just a very, very tumultuous time. And we kept ke- catching her in lies and catching her in lies. Well, the, the last father-daughter retreat was going to be basically that mission trip to Africa uh, a year ago. And so she and I went to Malawi, and uh, we served together there for two weeks. And the second week, a young man showed up and just immediately caught her eye and just everything that, that I felt like was going great just kind of unraveled the second week because this teenage boy, her age, had showed up to, to, to serve. And uh, we got back from Africa and things just, they just were just a lot of turmoil, a lot of arguing, a lot of lying, and we just kept, continued to catch her. Well, one day, not long after we got back, she came to the kitchen and she said, Brandy said, Honey, look at Laura's wrist. Is this a, look at this, is this a rash? And I, I glanced at it and I said, Yeah, it's just a rash. It'll go away. And I just went on about my business. Um, a couple of days later, we caught her in a lie and, and we brought her in to the living room late one night. And it just, she broke down and she, she wept and, and she shared with us that for quite a number of weeks she'd been cutting herself. And uh, we began to talk about that. We're trying to figure out the root of that. And what came out in the conversation was that one of these boys that we'd been trying to you know, keep her from giving her heart to, she had given her heart to him, and she'd actually gotten involved in some sexual immorality with him. And it uh, wasn't as bad as it could have been, but it was sexual immorality. And, um, man, guys, I'm going to be honest with you. That was the worst night of my life in so many ways. So Brandy and I, we, we put a plan together. Um, we moved Laura into our bedroom, and I moved to the basement. 
And so for the next six weeks, I didn't sleep with my wife. I slept in the basement so that Brandy could sleep with Laura to watch her all night. We took all the knives in the house, everything that you could possibly cut yourself with, we, we made it disappear. And we started doing some counseling, and Laura and I went and met with Tom Nesbitt. I mean, we were just, I started, I had to take her out of the youth group, had to pull her out of youth choir, I mean, uh, uh, a high school choir. She was going to the high school once a week. Just because we homeschool, but she'd go in there one, for one hour, and that's when she was fostering these relationships that were unhealthy. Pulled her out of that. Pulled her out of the youth group for a season. I'd take her out on Wednesday nights. We'd talk through these things. But we just, I just felt like we weren't getting anywhere. But that night, it all came out. I remember after she and Brandy went and laid down to go to sleep or to try to sleep, I, I took this Bible... Now, I know this is weird for me to have a pink Bible. Um, my buddy, my, my pastor friend at, at Cornerstone, Matt Linzer, gave me this Bible. And what, what kind of upset me when he gave it to me, he said, When I saw this, I thought of you. <laughs> a pink Bible? But anyway, I took this Bible, and it's a, it's a journaling Bible, so every other page is blank. And somehow the Lord led me to, to Psalm 55. And I read that psalm and I got to verse 22 and it says this, Cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. And you can, you can come and look at it. I wrote that verse over and over and over and over on this page. And I just kept writing it. And I wanted to believe it. And then I wrote this at the bottom. God, I'm devastated right now. I hurt so bad. My heart is broken. And I'm very confused and disoriented. I don't know for sure which way to go. I believe this promise. But I need you to make it real in my life. Please give me wisdom and sustain me and my family. Love, Paul. In I don't know if one of my grandkids will find this one day and they'll ask me or Laura or one of my kids, hey, what is this? But I'm going to tell you what this is. This is a stone of remembrance. And I remember that night laying in the bed thinking, good night, I cannot believe. For 11 and a half years I was a youth pastor and counseled with scores of families dealing with cutting. And my own daughter comes to me screaming for help, showing me her cuts, and I missed it. And what about all these father-daughter retreats? And I'm thinking, what a waste! So we got on through her graduation, and we got into the summer, and we're trying to figure out what in the world she's going to do. And she began to talk about going to a summer camp called Fusion Camp in Kansas City. And uh, she was going to go alone. And she just seemed bound to determine she, want, she felt like she wanted to go. And so the night before she left, she, 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 we had to call, uh, we had to take her to the emergency room because we thought she was having appendicitis. And... Uh, they thought that they finally decided they, it wasn't that. Maybe it was a cyst on her ovary. Couldn't figure it out. They sent her home. So the next day, we're like, what do we do? Do we take her to this camp or not? So I just told Brandy, I said, you know what? She's 18 years old. If she wants to go, let's take her. So we took her to Kansas City. We dropped her off at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And Brandy and I said, hey, let's eat dinner here so that if something happens, we, at least we're still here. Give her an hour. So we went to eat. We got on the road. We got back to um, Bethany, Missouri, and my phone rings. And it's Laura, and I said, oh, brother, she's had another appendicitis attack. She said, Dad, I don't know if you guys are going to be upset. I don't know if you're going to be mad. I don't know if you're going to be surprised. But I got to tell you, tonight I was born again. And she said, I know I've been a pastor's daughter I know I've done this before. She said, but tonight the pastor said, if the gospel has not changed your life, you are not born again. 
And she said, Dad, I, there was an irresistible call on my life and I could not do anything but surrender to Jesus tonight. And so we went back down there at the end of the week and we watched her get baptized. Do you have that video? Here's a little video of her baptism at the lake there on the campus. And so, that week, she became a new creation. And uh, all things are becoming new now. Um, she came home. She continued to pursue the uh, fusion program. She enrolled at Midwestern. The fusion program is basically the first semester they prepare young adults to, uh, to go to the hard places with the gospel. And so, the second semester they go to reach unreached people groups. Here's a picture of me and Laura. Um, this, I think there's one. Yeah, this is her home on fall break. And I don't know if you can just, if you can, you know, if you can see the, just the unity and the joy and the, and the change. Maybe you, it may be hard for you to see, but um, this next picture is uh, her new wardrobe that, uh, that we bought her so that she could go into a country that's 0.3% Christian. It's, uh, it's a Muslim country that's completely close to the gospel. And this is the way the ladies dress where she is now. And uh, this next picture we took just minutes before she got on the plane. And after she left, just a couple of weeks back, she, uh, she said, Dad, now don't read this letter until I leave. And she gave me this letter and it says, and I read it after her plane took off. It says, Dear Dad... I'd like to begin by saying thank you. A letter is far from sufficient to communicate my love for you and my thankfulness for all that you've done. But I wanted to try. You have believed in me since day one. and You've always been there. Always a step away when I set out on my own thinking I didn't need you. But I did. And even through the tough moments and all the times that I hurt you, you never gave up. And your unconditional love is what drew me near the cross. It's very difficult to say goodbye to you all, and sometimes I struggle to believe that it's worth it, but deep down I know it is. I will pray for your ministry here that the gospel would continue to heal broken lives and marriages and households. May the Lord use you mightily, and I love you very much, and I will remember all the good times. And my favorite is when you would talk with the tennis ball. We had this tennis ball that was slit and I would talk like a little mouth with it and carry on a bunch of foolishness with them. I'll see you in May, Lord willing, Laura. This next picture was taken at her shields. Oh, that's a picture of Laura with uh, one of the little children in the land where, in the country where she's serving. And the next picture was taken at the shield ceremony where the, the fusion students were commissioned. And the little redhead sitting on her right is Sarah Beth. She's our youngest child. And so while there's one arrow been launched, there's Sarah Beth there. This next picture is uh, me and Sarah Beth making pancakes together a few weeks ago. And she's just bound and determined to flip those pancakes herself. And so... While it's hard and while sometimes you feel like it's not worth it, I'm committed to laying down stones of remembrance with that little girl too. And this next picture is a date that me and Sarah Beth took a few weeks ago. Guys, here's what I'm trying to say to you. Will you commit today in your marriage and with your children and your grandchildren and your future children to live a life that leaves behind stones of remembrance that point to the glory of God and the grace of God and the faithfulness of God. 
Brother Nick, why don't you come back up and, and begin to, to play one last time. And Man, guys, I want you to think about those, those priests stepping out into that water. You realize none of this whole stone of remembrance things, thing happens unless those priests put the soles of their feet in the Jordan. That's a step of faith. I mean, that's what that dad was talking about on that video before I preached. I took a step and became a Christian. And guys, I'm going to tell you, the greatest thing you can do today to leave a stone of remembrance, if you're not born again, is take a step and repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of your life. And it's highly possible that there's a guy in here, and maybe you've been like my daughter was. Laura shared her testimony at church. She said, I'm sorry, but I was playing games. I knew what to say. I knew all the lingo. I was really good at it. And she was really good at it. But she wasn't serving the Lord in sincerity and truth. Maybe you need to step out today and you need to be born again. Maybe, and and I know it's hard to admit we got idols. Maybe you need to step out into the river and you need to bring some idols to Shechem. Maybe God has already shown you exactly what you need to do. You need to go home and you need to make a fresh commitment to date your wife. And to invest in her emotional security. Maybe you need to step out today into the river. And you need to admit to another man that you're caught in the web of pornography. Guys, I'm telling you, there's generations at stake. And the river's going to drop. And the drought's going to come. And I'm asking you, will your children and will your grandchildren see some stones that will point them to a faithful God? He's faithful. Who can stop the Lord Almighty?